Coming up on this week's show, Space Invaders comes to the real world. Coolest Half-Life 2 mod ever. And we talk to the founder of Wave Game Studios and Debug Magazine, Daniel Crocker. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you absolutely have to check out this summer, Metal Slug, The Ultimate History, a loving homage to SNK's comedy shooter, beautifully produced in 452 colourful pages using their trademark gorgeous Pantone inks, black foil block cover and the finest possible print quality. So you can check that out in the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 388, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another hour-ish, where we reminisce about all things retro gaming and technology related. Basically, if you remember this sound, you've got mail. This is a podcast for you. What's that AOL? <laughs> you know what? Yeah, it is. And I think this is one of those... Cases where we you know we've obviously seen the Tom Hanks movie, um, we obviously you know we've seen that so many times on YouTube and stuff like that. It's kind of fell, fallen into our consciousness a bit, I think. But actually, over here in the UK, we never had this. You've got mail. That was on the American version of AOL. Do you remember what we had in the UK? No. You've got post. <laughs> I, Any idea who that is? Joanna Lumley. You've got post. Joanna Lumley, of course it is. <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah, she's kind of been forgotten. But that's what we explore in this era. You know, the classic age, the 90s, the 80s, even going back to like the 70s sometimes as well. And we explore bringing classic games, classic consoles into the modern age as well. And it does seem recently the Dreamcast has been getting so much love, hasn't it? New games, new titles coming out. We've done a few episodes about the Dreamcast recently, and we thought we'd continue that because, and Ravi, you were chatting to these guys at a uh, gaming event in Nottingham a couple of weeks ago, and uh, this is Wave Game Studios, who are making some of the most impressive Dreamcast games I think I've ever seen. Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty amazing to see this whole kind of Dreamcast uh, scene growing up, and, uh, you know, stuff getting published and also like officially published as well. So um, Wave Game Studios are absolutely amazing. They've uh, uh, ported Postal, which is uh, one that, you know, we were talking about quite a while ago. That was one of their big releases, but they've also done lots of indie titles and um, they run Debug Magazine as well. So Debug Magazine is uh, also founded uh, by the founder of uh, Wave Game Studios, Daniel, who... What, what is Debug Magazine then? I'm not saying So that well. Debug Magazine is a magazine all about indie games. And, uh, you know, a lot of these indie games also have retro influence in them mm. as well. So it's it's a very good look at that. And it's kind of good to get exposure for, for people in these magazines. But the Dreamcast games, oh, my God, like uh, they've just released one called Driving Strikers. And that has online multiplayer. And it's not using SegaNet. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's basically direct to the... Uh, of a Dreamcast, or you can play cross-play on the PC as well, which is pretty amazing. Oh. And, uh, you know, it's the only Dreamcast game uh, since 2002 that's uh, been released with that online feature. So, you know, they're really pushing what's uh, coming out for the Dreamcast and pushing that kind of professional publishing vibe with really nice, you know, covers, manuals, um, extra soundtracks and uh, 
the way that they produce these games is uh, absolutely fantastic. Well, I know you and Joe did this interview, um, and I'm looking at their website now, and yeah, the quality of some of these games. I mean, they've got one that looks a bit like a kind of side-scrolling Streets of Rage kind of game called Shadow Gangs. That looks right up your street, Joe, this one. Yeah, Shadow Gangs. Um, that's been getting quite a bit of love for the last year, actually. Uh, quite a few YouTubers covering that. Kind of a crossover Streets of Rage, Meet Shinobi, very late 80s Sega. Um, and a lot of the games they cover, um, Daniel kind of said, you know, sometimes you'll pick them up and play them and you'll go, that's re- very reminiscent of this classic Sega game. Mm. Um, so, you know, they always kind of like those games, the games they put out are very fitting for the Dreamcast. You know, like you say, some of them are retro, some of them are 3D and really kind of push the, the Dreamcast to its limits. Um, you know, there's um, Xenocider, which is very reminiscent of of Space Harrier but with the Dreamcast, you know, kind of 3D visuals and stuff like that. And it's really interesting kind of listening to him talk about how a lot of the games still utilize the VMU and, you know, games back then, some of them didn't even use the VMU. So it's great to see this little indie studio, you know, utilizing that and just kind of hearing about how, you know, how you put these games out and how you actually make them and how you contact the studios and stuff like that. It's really interesting and uh, yeah, really does feel like 2023 is definitely the year of the Dreamcast at the moment you know, kind of 21 years after its demise. Interesting. There's the episode title. There you go. (laughs) It is very cool. Because I'm looking at, I mean, they sell these physically, don't they, as well? And like the price of them, I mean, they range from about 15 to 30 quid. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, really affordable. A lot lot of these are like, you got another like limited run games. I understand, you know, they're doing cartridges a lot of the time, but they're often like 60, 70 quid, aren't they? And these have uh, stuff like, you know, VGA is supported on there as well. And they're region free as well, which is mm. really important. So, you know, you can play them on any Dreamcast in a, any region, which is pretty amazing. And uh, I love all these extra features, you know, stuff like Rumble Pack support. Um, really, really cool. So we'll find out why 2023 is the year of the Dreamcast with founder of Wave Game Studios and uh, Debug Magazine, Daniel Crocker. He's going to be our special guest on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, it's not the only guest that we've got on the podcast this week. Hey, Pete. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you guys? Hello, Retro. Very good, thank you. (laughs) Well, this is, uh, we've kind of done this a couple of times now, something we kind of do irregularly where we, you know, we we invite someone on from our patron community who we enjoy talking to on our patrons hangout, so we think would be great to come on and kind of give their thoughts on the news stories as well. And uh, Pete, you've been a massive part of our patrons community. You're on, you know, pretty much all the hangouts. We, uh lucky enough to meet in person at Ravi's Kickstart event a couple of weeks ago as well. So, I mean, for those who might not have met you before, can I give us your background? I mean, what, what are you kind of into retro-wise? Oof, wow, how long have you got? Um, feel free to edit me <laughs> down because uh, <laughs> I could go on. Um, yeah, I, I, I've had an IT uh, career that's, that's gone pretty much, or experience from from being a very young age. My first computer was a, or console, was a Binatone TV master that uh, came out in 1976, which was just a mm. year after I was born. And for those that don't know you, it's a, kind of one of those Pong clones that came out with the bat and ball. So you just had a basically a wheel you held in your hand. And the nice thing was, what I remember is it was kind of a social thing because there was two of you playing, which and it was that simple. You, your mum and dad and your grandparents could use it. It was one of the first games that I had that, um, you know, everybody in the family took part of and, and played and enjoyed. And uh, that, that was really cool. And I've still got that that boxed up in the loft and, and, and recently I did a little bit of a mod on it so I could play it on a, a more modern t- screen instead of using the old UHF. Nice. After that um, around 8 I got a Commodore Vic 20. I've still got that machine as well um, but they did an awesome, awesome job with that you know all the manuals, the intro guides 
everything that they gave you with that computer to kind of encourage you to explore programming it, uh, yeah. learning basic, um, really fiddling around to get to this idea of, you know, I could type things in and color and sound and, and all sorts of stuff came out of it. And it was just absolutely fascinated me what I could do with this box of electronics. And uh, a couple of years later, you know, I went down the usual route um, in the UK where you either end up with a Spectrum 48K or a, an Amstrad or a Commodore 64. And I had a 48K plus, so not just mm. a 48K for me, which I love just not only for the games, but again, uh, the creative stuff. Like there was a program called The Artist where it let you draw. It's kind of freehand. And Wham! The Music Box, which um, I don't know if you're into Wham! guys. I watched a documentary on Netflix the other day. Oh, did you really? It, well, what, about Wham! or Wham! The Music Box? Yeah, Wham! Yeah. Oh, Wham! <laughs> no, Wham! themselves, yeah. Well, back then, <laughs> so that you could get all the all those wonderful Wham! music um, gems that I'm sure you'd, you'd dance around the uh, garage to, Dan, and, but in wonderful spectrum <laughs> sound. Uh, but it was oh, great. Nice. You could make your own, well, no, noise in my case, um, through the computer. I'd, I'd like to say music, but... Um, yeah, so you've kind of explored the more like creative side of computing as well. I mean, I, I know obviously that that Binotone device give you a, a lifelong addiction to gaming as well. So it's um, yeah, it's gonna be great to kind of get you, you know your input on uh, on today's stories as well, Pete. So I uh, really appreciate you joining us, um, and we have got you know plenty of new stories to delve into this week. So why don't we start with um, AR now? AR obviously a couple of years ago that kind of made. The headlines everywhere. And I know, actually, I don't know if you put played it much, Pete, but I know Ravi and Joe, you guys were addicted to the Pokemon Go game when that came out. I was so addicted that I was out at, I think it was 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning, and uh, I was at a local Pokemon gym in a very sketchy area, actually, and I looked across and there was another Pokemon person playing, and I was, like, (laughs) obviously battling them, but I was like, should I approach someone at 4 a.m. in the morning and be like, no. So I just kind of left it. And uh, yeah, but I did get really addicted to that. And that 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 was probably one of the biggest AR titles that I've played. I don't think I've played any other AR titles that have ever got me, you know, that into gaming. I, I was hugely into Ingress. That was kind of the precursor to before mm. Niantic. They, they moved on to do the Pokemon stuff that was really popular. But Ingress was uh, very, very good. Didn't they use a lot of the locations in Ingress already and transferred it over to Pokemon? Absolutely correct. Yeah, they yeah they used it to gather data basically and then uh, push it into Pokemon. But it was really great because it got you out and about um, mm. with all your friends, and you were discovering things locally that I knew nothing about. All these historical items that were portals and they were magic, and and then you were stumbling over like a, a stone you've walked past a hundred times before, and suddenly you realise it's of historical importance, and you've got no idea. So. Yeah, AR games can be quite good, especially when they get you out and about, I think. Yeah, well, this new one, I mean, this is, um, it's not anywhere near as in-depth as something like Pokemon Go, um, but this is um, a celebration of Space Invaders to celebrate the game's 45th anniversary. This is a game called Space Invaders World Defense, and it is free to download on uh, Android and iOS. And this is basically, it's a uh, an AR version of, of Space Invaders. Now, it has got, you know, multiplayer elements in there as well, so you can compete with friends and other players nearby. But really what it means is you need to be outside to play this game as well. So I tried to play it in my house, and literally the game tells you that you have to get up and go outside if you try and play it indoors. (laughs) So So what it does, it basically gives you Space Invaders outside and the Space Invaders come down around buildings and your street and trees and everything as well. Obviously you're looking at it through your phone. Now, I played with this for about, five minutes earlier on before we did the podcast. I must admit, AR to me, I think, I understand where, you know, Pete and Ravi are coming from there, if, you know, if you're playing it with 
other people in real life. But for me standing there on the front of my house, pointing my phone at my neighbours' houses for five minutes, I don't know, it just felt a little bit weird. The neighbours are, oh, Dan's at it in the garden again. What's he doing? Yeah, why? Is he recording our house? What's he doing pointing the camera directly at my house for like five minutes? And then you have to explain <laughs> to him you're shooting aliens out of the sky. Yeah, I'm sitting there going, pew, 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 pew. Um, but I mean, what, what do you guys think of this? I mean, is this something you've uh, you've played? Is it something that looks interesting? So I haven't played it yet. I've I've just been watching the trailer on it, um, and it's. It, I'm glad to see they're like massive in between the buildings. It's not like you know the little ones and hundreds of little ones. Um, but just to point out, I I barely played Pokemon Go. By the way, <laughs> when you said I was addicted was, to was, it, was, was it your missus that got into it? I, I played it a little bit, and my missus played it a right. little bit for about for about right, a week or two. Um, but yeah, I think this looks pretty interesting. I'm going to give it a download. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'll give that a go. And then I thought, I'll be playing it on my walk to work tomorrow and I probably will look a bit weird. That is, that, yeah. yeah, yeah it, just it, just keep an eye when you're crossing the road, uh, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. The AR market at the moment, I mean, there's this article on a Eurogamer that I'll link up as well. Um, they're saying that, you know, the, the Pokemon Go uh, developer Niantic that we mentioned there, they've laid off a quarter of their staff recently as well. Um, they've they've cancelled their upcoming Marvel World of Heroes project as well. So, so it doesn't seem like it, it's not a great time for AR at the moment. Apparently Apple's Vision Pro headset has not been selling as well as they expected, maybe because they wanted $3,500 for it. Well, it could be it, a reason why. It wasn't why. meant for consumers. I, I think that's yeah. meant for developers to try and figure yeah. out ways to actually develop some decent uh, software for the device. It's not meant to be affordable, I don't think, for humans. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah. I mean, not, not I, I imagine the one of humans. I mean, I'm sure developers are. <laughs> I employ a few of them. So I'm really going to get it in the neck when they hear this. <laughs> but I mean, to me, this game's a freebie. I mean, it's to celebrate something great in our Space Invaders 45th birthday. So I think for that reason, I think it is definitely worth a download. And, you know, you'll get a few minutes worth of fun out of it. And I'm sure some people will become uh, addicted to it, probably. I, 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 I think like. we're going to see a lot more of these because obviously Apple's going to be going for that. And. There's been lots of attempts at AR and stuff. There's um, oh Google Glass as well, wasn't there? And there's yeah. also um, this wand one uh, that's that's come out recently. Yeah. Cast AR, that was the one. Mm. And Cast AR is an interesting concept, which is you've kind of got glasses and you've got a wand and you kind of play like, you know, chess and interactive stuff or you'd have like battle games but you do it on a table where you're sitting down and you're not kind of wandering around the world so i think there's still a bit of you know exploration in different areas to go and of course people are always going to mess up with it but you know when something hits like pokemon go did you know then it's absolutely huge like that was an unstoppable at one point you know well, it could get all the kids playing Space Invaders. That could be the next cool thing. It's like 1978 all over again. So if you want to download that, it is free now on the Google Play Store and the iOS App Store as well. So I'll link that up in our show notes if you want to check it out. Now, I was um, shopping at a retro game store over the weekend. I went up to see my friend in Leeds, a little wander around. Half-Life 2, now that was an amazing game. I was quite surprised to see that a copy of Half-Life 2 in a retro gaming store on the uh, original Xbox was 25 quid. Oh, wow. Ooh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that shopping price. I remember buying that. God, it must have been about £2 when I bought it about a decade ago. Obviously, I think, you know, over the last couple of decades, it's definitely become a, an iconic cult game. And something that keeps getting improved due to the modding scene as well. But I've got to say, I mean, I've seen a lot of Half-Life mods. This one um, that's been all over my socials this week could possibly be the, the greatest Half-Life 2 mod I've ever seen. I, I mean, I, 
I've never played the Half-Life games. You've just got me into trouble there. You've just outed me. <laughs> um, and I, I do like the Lego games. Um, well, you've so, played the Lego games, but you haven't yeah, played, played the Lego games. <laughs> Completely the life of, of a father. The life of a father. I ain't even going to lie to you. I've been playing these Lego games for about 10 years. <laughs> but I haven't played the Half-Life games. You know, maybe this is my excuse to finally pick them up. But yeah, I think I think this does look pretty funny. My only kind of like downfall of it, because it's awesome, because it's a one-for-one recreation, you know, of the original game. And like, it, it, it's all completely playable. You know, it's, it's a huge, you know, it's a mod. It's completely sorted and everything. And... Um, well, we didn't mention what it was. Someone's basically, the, it's a mod that turns Half-Life into a Lego game. Yeah. So it replaces all the characters in there with, with actual little Lego men. Yeah, with the Lego minifigures. But my only problem with it is uh, the ratios don't kind of translate to the game. So obviously Half-Life being a first-person shooter and the Lego games being third-person, kind of top-down, kind of isometric views, some of them, some of them from behind. It, it It's modded it so it's a from-behind view, but it's mm. kind of like, pretty close kind of over the shoulder sometimes over the top of the head and it looks a little bit seasickness to me a little bit jarring it's um interesting because telltale games were the uh guys that originally released the lego titles and um you know they went defunct around four years ago so it's good to see kind of mods coming out and continuing this because those games seemed incredibly popular and uh you know they do them on a, a lot of films and uh that kind of company was also founded from uh ex lucas arts developers as well so it's it's got that whole connection uh having it in the half-life world is quite interesting because you've got the whole cinematic aspect of half-life as well do, do you want some bad I, news guys yeah. yeah i know it's been pulled no, no. <laughs> yeah and that's the thing i mean as soon as i saw this i i knew this was going to get taken down apparently the the lego company copyright struck it straight away um, so I don't think it's available anymore. There's literally just a little trailer that you can watch now. But I think, I were, you, were you much of a Half-Life fan, Pete? It sounds like it might have been something else. Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, they really started the first-person shooter idea where you'd actually got a story, something really yeah. cinematic. It was like you were playing a film. Those, those games really kick-started a revolution in, in, in gaming. I mean, I mean, if they didn't, someone else would, but they really were the first to, to bring alive a story and... Uh, yeah, the fact that you can mod them and do everything else for so many years later is absolutely awesome. And I saw the video for this Lego thing. And it was so good. It was so shiny. Yeah. It, 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 this guy had poured his heart and soul into it. The mod is called Not Dave or Daniel, which intrigued me because I got I, I had the idea maybe he got fed up with people mixing him up with his other two brothers called Dave and Daniel or something. So I'm going to guess he's a Derek. <laughs> I, I don't, maybe he's a Derek, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember. I think I played Half Life Two, and it was it was in the orange box, I think, wasn't it on the on the three sixty? Um, that's when I really got into it. Uh, but yeah, this mod basically it's obviously for the PC version of it. And what one thing I do like about it is, if you watch the trailer, it is literally just all I've done is replace the the characters with Lego men and women. So all the drama's still there, all the gritty, dark, dystopian stories still there as well. All the enemies, so. Uh, there's that great mixture, I think, between it just being so ridiculous with the Lego characters in there, but that really gritty storyline still remains. Yeah. So um, I, I it is a shame, that. unfortunately. I can't think yeah, of another it, Lego game where you actually get to shoot and kill the Lego creatures. Now, to feel a bit guilty doing it, killing a Lego man. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one thing. I mean, the, the original weapons are still in there in the game as well, but apparently there is a uh, another mod that you can put onto Half-Life 2 called uh, Lord Antonio's Tools and Weapons Lego, Lego Collection mod that turns all the guns into uh, 
Lego weapons as well. So that could be a good combination. So um, I know Lego have taken it down, but I'm sure there will be some uh, dark and dingy corner of the internet where a file still exists. Message Ravi if you want the link, I'm sure. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Half-Life 2, Lego game looks really good. If you want to check that out, I'll put that in our show notes along with the rest of the stories on the uh, podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, Atari seem to be on a bit of a roll at the moment. I mean, you know, we're talking about them releasing, you know, the first new Atari-branded cartridge for the 2600 in got about 30 years the other week on the show. This one, I think, is slightly more niche, as Atari have now launched a collectible arcade circuit board. This is... Reproduction yeah, of retro classics. Yeah, this is really, really weird, actually, because I thought these would just be you know, fun kind of boards that, um, you know, look like the originals, but they're just kind of, you can stick them on the wall. They're not functional. They don't do anything. And uh, then I looked at the pricing and I was like, okay, $208. Now, looking at these actual PCBs, um, they seem to be collector's items, but also you can actually, uh, they follow the original schematic. So you can actually replace the uh, put the Atari chips in from the old boards, put them into these new ones and actually use them as replacements, which uh, I can imagine a lot of these boards are, you know, getting quite old, the original ones are. Mm. So getting a replacement board is a, a, a wicked idea. And then you've got some history and facts on the back. And this shows like a, a level of attention to detail that I, I wouldn't have expected. You know, I know they've been releasing some 2600 carts and stuff, that actually work and seeing this, you know, it really makes me smile actually. Cause I, c- I could imagine, you know, just getting a random circuit board, putting it out there and selling it. But this is a, uh, this has got some proper thought. I want to like it. It's one of those things where I kind of feel like, uh, if you appreciate it and look at it and you want to hang it on your wall, that's brilliant. I, I went to, um, a gallery in the mailbox recently. I was just passing it going somewhere else. And I had a look around at all sorts of art and things in there, but I certainly wouldn't want any of that on my wall. And it was an awful lot more expensive than this. So to me, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If, if you appreciate what it is and you want to spend the money to stick it on the wall, that's, that's fantastic. But it's kind of not my thing. I, I, I love the idea of using it as a, as a game and, or breathing new life into an arcade cabinet. I think that's wonderful. But um, yeah, I don't get the, the, the idea of selling it as a piece of art. Not with that. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was strange as well because of, you know, they look cool. They're like, a you know, the green motherboard style and they have the logo of the games on there. And there's five of them, isn't there? Or is there six of them? I think there's five of them. But interestingly, they have like facts and history about the games printed on them as well. But apparently there's that much text and information on there. It's actually really difficult to read it. So from <laughs> like kind of like an, an art piece, it's kind of like, I guess it's meant to be multifunctional. You know, it's like, oh, it's got historical things about the game on there as well, but you can't really read it. You have to get right up close and stuff. So I can't I can't kind of work out if it's meant to be a piece of art or, like you say, a, a replacement for your arcade board, which I think is really cool, but which is it? Does that make sense? I've got a feeling that this is... I mean, there is five of them. So you've got Gravatar, uh, Major Havoc, Black Widow, Warlords, and Lunar Lander. Um, all of these are available to play in many different ways, are on the Atari 50 collection as well. But I've got a feeling that, you know, if they were just releasing these for people that own the original arcades, 
that is a very, very niche market, isn't it? So they're not going to, probably won't be worth a while printing them just for that market, I imagine. So that's probably why they're pushing these as kind of art pieces too, just to, you know, sell Th- more of Thinking them. about like consoles or, or old computers. So at the moment with the Amiga scene, we get a lot of printed uh, Amiga 4000 PCBs with like modifications and, you know, you can then transplant all the stuff to them. And maybe, I don't know about, arcade pcbs but maybe there was a whole scene emerging of people you know printing them and uh, doing reproduction ones and i don't know i guess atari might have looked at that and said well why don't we do that ourselves but turn it into a piece of art as well <laughs> like uh, sell it as that you know spin it that way and maybe they want to maintain that copyright as well and 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 keep it so it's in in their kind of control i'm, I'm not quite sure but um I've seen a lot of reproduction boards coming out for all sorts of machines and I don't know where where the law kind of lies on this, especially with arcades and stuff. Yeah, it does generally tend to be more of a hobbyist thing, doesn't it? It's I don't think I've seen any kind of, you know, major companies kind of doing this themselves. So it's quite interesting to see Atari kind of going down this route. Yeah, this so, is the uh, first one that I've seen from yeah. like a major company, yeah. I've got to say that Atari keeps surprising us. Yeah. Every time we talk about them recently, this would be like, wow, didn't expect that to it's definitely changed from the um, little classic um, Atari mini stuff that they had really early Or the hotels. On, or the broken ones. Or the hotels. Or the cryptocurrency yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to be alive and an Atari fan. So uh, if you going to check that out, they are available now. And apparently they're, uh, they're not pre-orders. They're actually, you know, you, you order it and it arrives day after or a couple of days later. So they're actually obviously a bit of confidence that they're going to sell these. They've actually printed them all up already. So I'll link that up in our show notes when to check it out. Now, something else that seems to be uh, quite on trend in retro at the moment seems to be making new memory cards for retro systems. Now, Joe, we were talking about this the other week on the podcast, that um, Memcard Pro for the GameCube. And now it turns out that PlayStation 1 and 2 fans are getting some love. Yeah, this is coming from, uh, it's the same people who made the GameCube one. Um, so it's coming from... 8-bit mods. 8-bit mods, thank you for that. Um, so they've previously released the original Memcard, um, but this is the Memcard Pro. Um, the difference being with this one is it works with both PS1 and PS2, whereas the previous one just worked on PS1. Um, and it makes sense because of obviously the original PS2 memory card, you could put PS1 saves on there. Um, so you can do that now uh, with this one. Um, very similar to the GameCube one. So essentially, you can put a micro SD card in there and back up all of your save files um, and essentially make it unlimited storage. Um, as they as they position it, um, and once again with one of the uh, tiny little OLED screens on there, which I always love because they're so small um, but functional, and kind of tell you what's going on with the memory card and stuff like that. Um, something you think you'd be pi- buying, Pete? One hundred percent. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I've recently discovered the magic of installing a SATA SSD drive into my fat PS2. Um, oh. I, I was very tempted actually to buy yours that you were selling at uh, Ravi's Kickstarter event because I yeah. saw that was, and just as another spare. But yeah, I, I've, got, I've got that situation where I've got a whole bunch of games to play now, but mm. I've got a whole load of memory cards and you soon fill them up and you're yeah. swapping them around all the time and you have no idea what saves on there. You're constantly wadging them in until the game says, oh, here's a save game. And uh, the annoying thing about the PlayStation as well is although you've got two save ports, I don't know if you guys find this, do you find that the games don't always find the save on the second port? They always seem to want to find them on yeah. port one. And my port one's taken up by the, um, uh, you know, the hacked SD, uh, the hacked memory card that basically boots it. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, and the second one's always a bit flaky. Apparently, this does work with the McFree boot as well. So if you're oh, okay. using that, um, you can use this in port one as a McFree boot as well, apparently. Now, I'm wondering as well, obviously, if you, you can basically have pretty much every PlayStation game saved on this, mm. you know, with, with the capacity that it's got. So you posted on our Facebook the other day, Joe. I wonder how much this is going to mess with Psycho Mantis from Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> you got like a thousand games on there. Yeah, I mean, he, I've, it was only select games, luckily, that he kind of <laughs> spoke about, you know, and they were other Konami titles, but that would be pretty funny if he had all those lines of dialogue and he's just like, oh, I can see you've played. Well, for, people, for people that haven't played that, explain what that is and kind of, um, when did you experience that? Because that, that was an amazing... Well, experience. yeah, so on the uh, Metal Gear Solid for the PS1, um, when you fought one of the bosses, Psycho Mantis, who is a psychic, um, the novelty was he could read your mind. So he would he would tell you about the games you've been playing, if they were other Konami games, so go, ah, I see you've been playing Castlevania. Um, you know, and as a child, or even as an adult, you know, at that time, it was probably pretty mind-blowing to see that uh, it was reading your memory card, which I guess is pretty easy at the end of the day in just certain lines of dialogue inserted in the games mm. that would be triggered if that save is detected. Uh, amongst other things, such as changing controller ports over and stuff to stop him from controlling you around the room. But um, yeah, that would be funny if he was like, ah, I can see you have 14,000 saves on your, <laughs> on your memory card. I'm not even going to bother picking one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I do like the idea of these. And this one, um, yeah, it's £40, which, you know, I guess is probably quite expensive for a memory card, being that you can buy them for about four quid normally and see actually original ones but for the you know the amount that you get on here as well and uh you know having backup and wi-fi support and stuff like that i mean you know it's and that game id function that we talked about as well so yeah it does seem like if uh if, if you care about that kind of thing then it's um yeah it will be worth adding to your collection so if you want to check that out i'll link that up in our show notes as well now when we get a patron on the podcast we always invite them to uh bring along a story as well pete now you've sent us um, one here um a company called megavision software who are um, working on a retro-inspired RPG at the moment that started all the way back in 1993. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. I, I, I have to uh, fully respect the, the, these these guys. They're a little bit, little bit like me when I was that kind of age. Um, I wanted to make my own game and uh, started along the, the, the trail of doing that. But um, like many people my age doing that, never really drew, drew it to any conclusion. Maybe we didn't have the skills or the time or what, I don't Anyway, these guys, I think they were I think brothers or something, I don't know, maybe just friends. And they had this idea after uh, playing uh, Eye of Beholder and, and games like that, the dungeon crawlers, you know, the ones where you basically just flick screen forward, left, right and things, uh, yeah. AD&D type things. Um, and they'd got their idea of bringing their own story to life called Mystic Land. And after 30 years, these two guys have got back together and decided they're actually going to finish this game. Um, which I think is absolutely wonderful. And um, they do seem, from the news and, and what they're posting, pretty determined to do this. Um, they're going to have a Steam page up in a week or two. Um, that was as of the 22nd, so three or four days ago. So expect that along uh, pretty much uh, any day soon. Um, so we'll be able to really get a good idea what it looks like. If you go to the website, um, they do have a little bit of a story. And they've got some mm. screenshots on here, some pre-alpha screenshots. And it does look very, very similar to um, you know the Eye of the Beholder type type games that were out there, and I was I was a huge sucker for those. And do, do you guys know those? Did you play those? Yeah, I'm, I, I mean I'm aware of them. It was never a genre that I was massively into, but I know they're very, very well respected. Um, and and this looks, I mean, because when when you mentioned then you know that it was a couple of teenagers originally, I thought it was just kind of a you know 
messing around, programming in the bedroom, whatever. But actually, this got quite far along. It was even uh, Surtech were um, apparently interested in publishing the game back in 1994. So I mean, it got quite far along, and um, you know they're making this for MS DOS. And then obviously, you know, when when you're a teenager, life goes in different directions, doesn't it? A lot of the time, so it kind of got shelved. But it did seem like um, even back then there was definitely you know interest from major publishers like Surtech in it. So. It will be interesting to see. I mean, it looks like they've got pretty high hopes for this as well. They said um, they're determined to make this the best old-school fantasy role-playing game ever. I, I love the idea that, you know, something that you came up with when you were younger and you all came up with together and then you disappear and go off and do different things and then return to it years later, you know, decades later, and uh, pick it up again and pick up the same storyline, the same characters. Mm. I think that's really cool. There's something, like, special about that, and... I was thinking maybe some of the stories I made up and stuff when I was a kid and like I, I, I played with a few games. I, I definitely would have revisit them. So this must have definitely been a strong one and they look like they're huge RPG fans as well. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, I tried to make a text adventure on the BBC Micro um, that not knowing kind of how in-depth the text adventure has to be and all the different choices that the player can make. Um, me and my friend were kind of plotting it down on paper, then we got completely lost and <laughs> just kind of shelved that after about a weekend. But if Gary Stewart is listening, I've not spoken to you since about 1990, drop me a Facebook message, remember we'll, uh, we'll pick that project up again. Reunite, <laughs> so, uh, complete I'm, it. <laughs> I'm inspired, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this looks awesome, though, so if you want to uh, keep an eye on this, um, we'll definitely update you on this story because I think that's very cool. And, uh, you know, the fact that it was uh, getting close to being published back in the day, hopefully, you know, there's not a massive amount of work. It just feels like, you know, it might be this kind of get back into the stride and finishing it off. And um, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll be interested to see what platforms it comes out, whether it's going to be an MS-DOS game or whether they'll update it for modern platforms. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. So um, Ooh, yeah, definitely keep an eye on that. It is safe. It uh, should be released in 2024 for Windows, Mac and Linux platforms. I imagine that's uh, Windows 11, not Windows 3.1. <laughs> they might surprise us. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Megavision hyphensoftware.com if you want to keep an eye on that. And of course, I'll put that and everything else we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this weekend being the final weekend of the month, we're all excited. Sunday night. It's always our favourite, isn't it, last Sunday of the month, Joe? Absolutely. We're going to be doing the uh, Patrons Hangout, which, uh, Pete, you are on pretty much every single week and uh, sometimes bring the party as well, don't you, pal? I try and make it interesting, you know, I've, I think I've joined it so far from Rhodes and Wales mm. and the back garden and always try and keep you guys guessing. And everyone's... From Santa's Grotto once I was going to say well, Santa's Grotto yeah. as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to make a bit of effort for you guys, you know. And they're really accepting great bunch, you know, and there's never any um, argy-bargy or anything. We all have a really great laugh. And, and the last time I turned up, I, I wore my cowboy hat, which um, looked absolutely ridiculous, and not a single person commented on it. That's just how polite and kind and nice these people are. Sat there like a completely <laughs> inside of a cowboy hat. Nobody mentioned it. That's br- I've actually got a friend who wears cowboy hats, and I never say anything. And I'm now wondering, after you said that, if he's trying to get like a rise out of me after all these years. <laughs> he's desperate for your attention. Give it <laughs> Yeah, but the patrons hang out. I mean, if you haven't joined us for this before, it is such a giggle. We all get together. Like Ravi always says, a bit like the Brady Bunch, isn't it? We're on different windows up there on uh, on Zoom. Um, and we talk about all kinds of things. I mean, you know, 
obviously retro gaming and tech's in there, but it can go off on all kind of weird and wonderful tangents as well. So if you'd like to join us um, for this weekend's uh, Patreon Hangout that's coming up on Sunday evening, 8pm UK time, uh, now would be a very good time to hop on and join our patrons community. And as well as the Hangout, we'll give you more stuff as well, don't we, Ravi? Oh, you've put me on the spot now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally, we do. Like, um, we've got a... a- backstage kind of discord section and channel as well and we've got an extra podcast which is the retro hour after hours which is now on some ridiculous number i know it got past double figures i think it's 36 36 oh my god (laughs) and uh you know you get an ad free episode as well and you're helping support the podcast as well which uh you know is fantastic and it's kept us going all these years and uh you know we'll continue to do it and deliver some fantastic stuff yeah, so if you'd like to join us on Patreon, uh, now's a very good time to do it and uh, join us for the Hangout this weekend. All the details to sign up are on our website right now at theretrohour.com. Right, well, listen, thank you uh, so much, Pete, for coming on and uh, being part of the news. It's been a, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You're really welcome. I've uh, really enjoyed it. And we'll see you for the Hangout uh, this weekend. Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it for the world. And uh, next, we're going to get some uh, stories about the Dreamcast in 2023. Find out why 2023 is the year of the Dreamcast with this week's special guest, founder of Wave Game Studios and Debug Magazine, Daniel Crocker, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we're here today with Daniel Crocker, the founder of wave game studios and debug magazine as well uh i'm wondering how you're doing daniel you're all right i'm doing very well thank you how are you good good yeah um recently we met in uh nottingham at the video game expo and he had all of these wonderful titles out and we recently did an episode as well with dreamcast junkyard so this is going to be a really interesting chat but you know i need to ask the question first that we always ask our guests and this is like when did you first see a Dreamcast or when did you first use wow, when did I first see a Dreamcast um, if we're talking in magazines I saw them probably in like 1998 something like that you know when when they were the hot new cool thing that was going to be coming out soon first time I saw one in person was Sainsbury's that's that's an odd place to see one <laughs> <laughs> well I remember our, our local Sainsbury's used to have a, an aisle full of video games you know Mm. strange concept nowadays but back then that was a pretty common sight um and they had a dreamcast set up and it was just like the coolest thing i'd ever seen up until that point and still to this day what title was it playing oh you know i i'm pretty sure it was the first sonic adventure i know it was definitely a 3d platformer and were you a big gamer at the time were you you know did you grow up with all the other consoles and everything were you a big fan of sega i was a huge fan of sega I started with the Master System, uh, mm. but oddly enough, very late, about 97. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was just a case of we, we didn't really have the money for like the latest mm. and greatest at the time. Yeah. And so it was it was a hand-me-down console, but I, I still loved it regardless. Mm. Um, and then I had a very quick sort of whistle-stop tour of like, right, Master System, Mega Drive, Saturn. Yeah. Missed out a few there, but we don't talk about those ones. and and, and were you uh you know when you saw the dreamcast were you kind of invested in the dreamcast did you think that was going to be the next big console or you know were you invested in playstation at all or i did have a playstation but i didn't vibe with it i was always Mm. a sega kid so when the dreamcast was sort of announced i thought right i've got to have it Mm. it's 
it looks like the coolest thing. The console looks cool. The graphics are cool. I remember distinctly remembering that the music in the games being advertised sounded awesome as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I never got one at the time because they were too expensive. So it took a, it took a while before I actually finally picked one up. And people were quite. Uh, I I know Sony came in and everybody knew that they had a big reputation, but they were still re- reluctant. You know, um, mm. uh, Sega was was the mega cool company at the time, and I was I was wondering like way past what cool. were the way past cool yeah they were they were everywhere and i was i was wondering what were your kind of favorite titles and what really stood out to you on the dreamcast the the one that i was the most excited about at the time was sega rally 2 because i've always been a huge 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 sega rally fan i was absolutely obsessed with the game in the arcades and when it came on the set and i was obsessed with it i bought it for pc as well and it was just my ultimate game it was it was the best thing since sliced bread that was changed slightly when I realized that it runs at about 15 frames per second or something. <laughs> it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Um, but then I picked up the Sonic Adventure games and just mm. got completely obsessed with them. Virtual Tennis as well. Probably sounds a little bit of an unusual choice. It just looked so cool and it felt cool to play. Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, Virtual Tennis was fantastic. And uh, oh, yeah. I'd also I'd played uh, Pete Sampras Tennis quite a lot on the uh, Mega Drive. So I had that kind of tennis history for me yeah with that title so when obviously the dreamcast you know sadly came forth you know kind of killed sega off from the console market and stuff like that Mm. how did you kind of feel you know around 2002 2003 i'm guessing you're a big dreamcast guy did did you go kind of straight into like the homebrew scene there or did you kind of just kind of like fizzle out for you for a little while you know you're not going to believe me but i actually didn't realize that it had the fate that it did oh really I think it's at the time, of course. I know that I really wanted it, but I knew that the the chances of having it were very, very slim. So I kind of just forgot about it and put it to the side of my mind until I want to say, I think it was about 2003 because I had heard wind that a lot of the, a bunch of homebrew stuff was coming out Mm. and I didn't know what that meant at the time, but it sounded cool. It was like a bunch of free games, essentially that people have, spent their precious time making and you can just burn it onto a disc and it boots and it's like oh wow that's really cool and the consoles were like 20 quid at the time so it was it was like a no-brainer by that point and so weirdly enough i got into the dreamcast off the back of the homebrew then realized that all the game all the games at the time were really really cheap bought tons yeah. of them yeah and that that's where my sort of love affair with the console really began it's uh, that kind of I was going to say peak time because it's not peak time. It was, mm. it's probably the least peak time, but it's that peak <laughs> yeah. time of in the UK, at least where the Dreamcast keyboard, you'd find them for a pound in your local game shop. Oh and yeah. You'd, and oh, you'd, yeah, find, you'd find House of Devs and the gun for four or five pounds and stuff like that. And you just end up building this huge Dreamcast library and all these amazing games that, you know, not many people were talking about at the time and stuff like that. So mm. How did they, uh, the love of the Dreamcast kind of like continue from there? How did we, what's the story from, you know, 2003, we're collecting all these games, we're, we're you know, buying all these accessories and we're getting into the, in the homebrew scene. How does Wave Studios fit into that then, you know, over the next kind of like, I guess the next 20 years, really? How does that kind of happen? It's, it's, it's crazy that it's been that long, to be honest. Mm. Um, what, what was in the back of my head for that entire period of time was uh, Beats of Rage, which is the, yeah. the engine that CNL team put out. 
And for quite a few years after that, I used to be uh, an active member in their forums. And there was a very active modding scene. So I would help people out with animations and uh, the scripting language that, that that game used. And that was kind of my my involvement within the Dreamcast scene was basically being a Beats of Rage guy. Mm. Um, made a bunch of mods myself, none of which exist anymore, unfortunately, just mm. due to not backing things up. I'm hoping someone will find one of them one day. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that, that that was kind of the thing for me. And then real life happened and um, I moved on to other things, went to college, got a job, started a career in yeah. marketing. And basically, you know, not to fast forward too much, it, it was pretty, pretty much just more of the same until 2020. And uh, just before we move on to the kind of the groundwork of Wave Studios, you mentioned that, you know, your old mods and stuff. What what kind of things were you doing back then? What sort of mods? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, obviously, they were all beat-em-ups. Yeah. Um, I had a Matrix-themed one. Oh, wow. Uh, that was called the Chrome Tricks. Uh-huh. And that, it's just because I had a friend whose surname was Chrome, and mm. I don't know, it just... It was a funny just, thing at the time. It just fit, fits as the, well. <laughs> yeah, the kind of thing that 15-year-olds find hilarious, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I started another one called Project Unreality, which was I'm trying to think of the term. So you know how you have digitized characters in games like Mortal Kombat? Yeah. The idea was that the entire game was digitized. People, backgrounds, vehicles, items, everything was digitized from sort of real-life photographs. Mm. Um, and that's something I'd quite like to pick up at some point because it was a really bizarre. I was wondering how much of that kind of homebrewed knowledge and playing around with engines and playing around with stuff mm. uh, led to you kind of being able to technically uh, create a game studio, but also do stuff like, you know, understand GD-ROMs and uh, how that all works. Yeah, um, it, it, it had a huge part in that for sure. Obviously, offering... Dreamcast games was something that I did just as a matter of course, really, all the time as as part of the modding scene. And the reason why it kind of came to fruition again in 2020 was um, those in the Dreamcast scene will will know that uh, CNL team had a Kickstarter set up for Intrepid Izzy. I want to say it was 2016 or or 2017. I'm not entirely sure, but they had this Kickstarter. It did very well. 2020 came along. Obviously, the world went kind of different. And I realized that this game was coming out and it wasn't going to get the attention that I felt that it deserved. I thought it was an absolutely amazing title. And to keep it within that traditional sort of like homebrew community, which is not a huge number of people in the grand scheme of things, I felt like I could probably help to get it out there into the world a little bit more, into the real world, so to speak. So how do you start that? Like, I'm guessing like lockdown may have helped then you know in 2020 i'm guessing maybe you had a little bit more time and stuff like that but how do you kind of start the studio then and then start i'm guessing being in the forums and already kind of being in the scene helps a lot it's it sounds like a boring story but the truth is it just it came it came on a whim i knew this game was coming out i knew that it looked awesome i knew that Mm -hmm. i had the skills and the contacts and the marketing expertise to 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 serve the game and Mm -hmm. help and help the release along so I, I spoke to the developers and I said, you know, I love this game. Mm. You guys know me. I've been a supporter of what you do for two decades now. Yeah. Um, let me help you. And uh, they said, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Let's do it. 
they knew that I was capable of this. I knew that they had a great product. So we just said, yeah, let's get on with it. Do you think that, um, you know, a title actually coming out on the Dreamcast is is quite a good thing for marketing because people suddenly go, yes. oh, look at this title coming out on an old console. You know, it's got that uh, massively a kind of yeah. novelty factor, you know. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, I've seen it time and time again. Games will come out on, let's say, Steam before mm. they come out on Dreamcast and they'll do pretty well. But once the game comes out on Dreamcast, it suddenly becomes noteworthy. It's not just another indie game that doesn't get press, uh, which saddens me to great great lengths, but it becomes, oh, this is a game which is for some reason on the Dreamcast. Um, so it gets talked about by the, you know, the Kotakus of this world. So obviously with uh, Intrepid Izzy, do you think it kind of came out at the, not the peak, but like the start of like, you mentioned, you know, how like these indie games will come out on Steam and stuff like that, and they won't get the recognition they deserve. Do you think that kind of came out at the start of this, like, because I remember on the show, on our new show, you know, going back like three or four years, and it'd be like, yeah oh my God, there's a new Dreamcast game or oh my God, there's a new Game Boy game. And I remember having a discussion about like, does this mean, you know, because they're officially released, does this mean mm. if there's a, somebody who's trying to get a complete Dreamcast collection, this game would be included. And it was a big deal, you know, in kind of 2019, 2020, 2021. Mm-hmm. And now like, and you know, for, for better or for worse, there's these new games coming out every week, you know, it's sort of become the norm now, yeah. And it's sort of become the norm, but do you think uh, Intrepid Izzy and, you know, the kind of start of Wave Studios, do you think that was the right time? Do you think that kind of helped with all of that? That's a really tricky question to answer, actually, because it felt to me that that was the purpose of, of mm. entering the scene, is that I knew that this stuff was out there. Homebrew games for Dreamcast have been coming out f- literally, you know, constantly for the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, but I didn't see them talked about and that's the thing. That's what I set out to change. Whether whether that's because of us or partly because of us or it was just the right timing, I can't really answer. But, mm. but yes, there was definitely a connection in those two events. Yeah. Um, in- and where would you say is the biggest kind of community for the Dreamcast in the world? Is, is it America? That is a brilliant question. Um, oddly enough, I would say mainland Europe. Um, the Dreamcast seems to be pretty huge in Germany and France. When you when you look at our sales, um, sort of statistics, over half of it is mainland Europe. I found that oh, wow. I found that really interesting. I don't really in my brain, and it's probably just me, you know, kind of thinking about it wrong. But I always associate the Dreamcast being big in the UK because a lot of these, mm. a lot of these studios and forums kind of originate in the UK. Yeah, um, so exactly. that's, that surprised me. I find that really interesting. Yeah, it's uh, mainland Europe and UK. US definitely has a scene, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether it's that we haven't reached it yet, but it, it yeah. does. It is. It does seem that the Dreamcast just wasn't quite as popular there for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Yeah, yeah. It, so, it was the underdog, but not the underdog which is beloved as much as it. As maybe in Europe, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk about uh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say this wrong now. Yeah, yeah, beepers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, beepers too. Yeah, 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 beepers too. So this is from uh, John Riggs, who I'm a big fan of as well. Um, how mm. how do you go about choosing like which titles to publish? You know, like which titles to do next, um, and you know, <laughs> thinking what's going to do well. That game has the weirdest story behind it. Mm. So we just put Intrepid Izzy out. It had done very well, much better than we expected, to the point where we had to reprint it within about 
two weeks, I'd say. Yeah. And then we put out the special edition version because the demand was there. And what strangely happened as a result of that is that we we generated this sort of, I don't want to use the word fan base, a community around this concept of releasing new games for the Dreamcast. Despite the fact that it had already happened, it it sort of grew. Hmm. And... Um, John Riggs had put out this game for the for the NES, the Nintendo yeah. Entertainment System. To my knowledge, it was pretty much it was just going to be a NES game. It was just something for him and his community, just for fun. And someone suggested, "Hey, you know, you can you could port this to the Dreamcast because it's pretty easy to get, you know, proper press discs, etc." So he did that. He did a very small run. I want to say 40, 50 units, something like that. Yeah. And they, they sold out immediately. And he said, no, that's it. It's a small run. I'm done. But what happened on, on Twitter is that his following were like, oh, just talk to the Wave guys. They'll do it for you. And yeah. I didn't even know that we were that well known at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he reached out and he said, you know, is this true? Do you do this? And I said, yep. Yeah. Two weeks later, it was done. It was out. <clears throat> And wow. um, and there was a pre-order up, and you know we did three hundred three hundred copies, I think. Yeah, and they pretty much all went straight away. That's fantastic. So I guess you know the reason he was like, no, it's done, is because of he was probably, I'm guessing, making them himself in his garage at home. You know, kind of like printing the labels and I think putting so, the yeah, NES I, cartridges together, and I guess doing thirty, forty, fifty cartridges that takes weeks. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of labor involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know he's a he's a full time radio host. I don't know yeah. if people know that. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's his that's his day to day. So mm. you, know, you can't mm. have him making NES games all day. <laughs> he can't make them all day every day. Exactly. No. So, um, what's been one of your most popular titles so far, or some of your other popular titles? Wow. So, the most popular in terms of like sheer attention and numbers, Intrepid is E, mm-hmm. for sure. The the out of nowhere surprise. Uh, interest was definitely yeah yeah Beavis, mm-hmm. but the most recent release, which is Driving Strikers, a kind of car based football game, that's been very fast to catch up with the others. Like it's it's been a much quicker rise than than the others so far. So it seems that there's a lot of interest in this in this concept. Mm. When I say the concept, I mean the fact that it's an online game. Well, we'll get into that later because that's mm, uh, yeah. some very <laughs> Im- impressive stuff going on there. But um. I was wondering as well, some of them have like extra features. So Flea had an additional soundtrack on CD. Um, it did, sure. Do people really enjoy those soundtracks? And, and would you ever consider doing a, a vinyl release as well with a game? A vinyl release. So, yes, um, I think that soundtracks are really important. Whether it's viable to do it or not is a huge, a huge gray area, shall we say. Um, yeah. The way that we've done it so far is that rather than release a soundtrack on its own, we've tended to say, okay, you can buy the game with the soundtrack. So most often we'll give people the choice. You know, you can have the game on its own or you can have it with a soundtrack. It's a little bit more, but you get this extra disc, which has the full soundtrack in high quality. As far as doing a vinyl, I would really love to, but it's it's so expensive to get vinyl made up at the moment. There's uh, all, all sorts of shortages in sort of the materials required. Um, I believe the main main issue is a shortage of nickel. Don't quote me on that, but that's that's my understanding. We'd love to do it, and we've looked into doing it, but um, you'd need to sell quite a few. 
Yeah, definitely. You don't want to be stuck with thousands of vinyls as well. No, no. But never say never. That's kind of my my motto is that, you know, if, if you went with the obvious answer, we wouldn't be doing any of this, would we? Yeah, totally. And I was wondering, like, you know, you mentioned that Europe seems to be like the kind of center of where it's going on at the moment in Central Europe. Yeah. How far have some of your games spread? Have you had some really obscure orders or, or places around the world that you wouldn't expect a, a Dreamcast game to go? The one that always surprises me is when um, countries which are not typically known for being uh, English-speaking in any way, for example, China. Um, we've sold quite a few to China, and that is very, very surprising. A few to Japan, um, even though the language is potentially a barrier but the games that we put out don't tend to rely on text too much, which is a deliberate choice. Um, Brazil as well. But that does that kind of makes sense because Brazil was always a Sega hotspot, right? Yeah, it's still going there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, you tell us about um, Rush Rush Rally Reloaded as well, how, how that came about, because uh, that looks like a really interesting title, especially with the uh, like local multiplayer you can do on it. Yeah, Rush Rush Rally Reloaded is is one of my favorites actually um it was originally released in 2009 i believe by a company called red spot red spot games based out of germany and unfortunately that publisher closed down shortly after so the numbers that were out there were actually quite low and what i found is that this game was awesome people wanted to play it but they just couldn't get hold of it the only way to get it was to buy it off ebay for some ridiculously overinflated price so because we had previously put out intrepid izzy i spoke to the devs again and i said you've got this other game that you put out a few years ago i'd quite like to to do a reprint if that's if that's okay with you they said yeah sure but you know we need to try and make it a bit more interesting it's not just a rehash so that's why the idea of putting the soundtrack with it we sold it for a, um, a very, very preferable price. And then people that, um, you know, obviously a few people that picked up the original also picked that up for the soundtrack. But um, the kind of purpose of that and that we also succeeded in was getting the game out to a, a much wider audience. And in particular with that one, I really stressed kind of like the physical retail side of things. Yeah, I saw that um, you also had like rumble pack support in there and... Uh... Stuff like supporting other pads and oh, yeah. arcade sticks. I don't know about arcade sticks. I mean, it, it, technically it does. I mean, that would be a weird way to play. But um, the the main thing with Rush Rush Rally Reload is the fact that it's four-player. And there's not a lot of four-player um, homebrew, basically. There's, there's, there's not a lot. Um, so that's kind of like one of the biggest, uh, the biggest things with that, as well as the online leaderboards. That's kind of like the two most exciting features from from reloaded well one thing i noticed when i saw you was um all the vmus had displays on them as well and i've played quite a few titles on the dreamcast that don't have displays on the vmu mm. and stuff do you think do you think that's really important to have in a game i think that's pretty important i mean at the very least it should have a logo or something it, it was an integral part of the console wasn't it yeah definitely and uh you know, it, it just adds to that whole kind of marketing package there and also the ability to auto-save onto it as well. I was about to say, it completes mm. the package with Dreamcast. I think VMU support 100% with the games. Yeah, oh, 100%. And you mentioned auto-save there. That's that's actually something that I didn't really think of, but 
was actually a very unusual feature back in back in the day when the Dreamcast was a new system. Mm. It was it was very much, I suppose, the way that the games had um, the language of games, as it were, was that you you get to a certain point and you save at that point. It might be like a safe house or some sort of save location. Like in, in the Pokemon games, the, you can technically save anywhere, for example, but the best place to save was in uh, a Poke Center. Mm. Whereas we've moved now in the modern era to this kind of like concept of autosave. So it's constantly saving all the time. Anytime anything sort of significant happens, just before you go into a boss battle, for example, it saves. Yeah. Um, that wasn't a thing back in the Dreamcast days. But as a result of porting some of these games from the PC world onto Dreamcast, we're starting to see that happening now. And it's a really, it's a really strange experience, but it's kind of like, why not? I think it's, it, it kind of brings it forward as well a little bit, you know, into the, into more into the 21st century and it kind of modernizes some of these games as well. Yeah. Oh, to an extent. So, uh, tell us about Xenocider and, uh, how you know what what's the story there xenocider that was a cool one for me because it's completely 3d mm-hmm. um there aren't many 3d indie games for the Dreamcast. Yeah. don't quote me i think there's two or three um and that was to the best of my knowledge it was the first um and again it had a fairly small print run it did very very well but as is the nature of these things you do your one print run it does well and then that's the end of it and i yeah I wanted to see it get out to more people, basically. And it's just yeah. it's as simple as that. So again, this is gonna it's gonna sound like a broken record, but I, sp- I spoke to the devs mm. and I said, This game is really cool. Nobody in the UK has it. Mm. Let's change that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, you yes, were but, are you a big fan of the Space Harrier style games? Yes. Yeah, big yeah. fan. Yeah. That's what that's what drew me to it. Because there's a lot of Dreamcast stuff, but I'm I'm looking for you know, completely selfishly, games that I think I enjoy. Mm. Because my my sort of theory, I suppose, is that if I enjoy it and I think that it's very, very good, the chances are that at least a decent percentage of people are going to agree with that. Mm. And what we're finding is that we're, we're exhibiting these games at UK-based events mm. because we're UK-based. Yeah. And almost nobody at the beginning at least, almost nobody realized that these games were still being made for the Dreamcast. So the the goal was very much to show it off. Mm. Um, You know, this is a game that's reminiscent of something you may have played before. Mm. Uh, It's got a unique twist to it. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's brand new and it's exciting and it's affordable. Yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, uh, like you say, some of these games start at £10. You know they're very reasonably yeah. reasonable and affordable. You know sometimes, and I understand why some of these Kickstarters and indie devs they put these games out at fifty, sixty pounds because they have to. Mm. But I guess you know they don't have a choice. Yeah, they don't have a choice. But you know, I guess having the foundations and being around for a good few years now with Wave Studios gives you that ability to to make it more affordable, which is great. Yeah, we we try to keep it like the the, the price is as low as possible whilst also mm-hmm. making sure that the developer is getting paid yeah um, yeah i i don't know exactly what the other publishers out there are doing but i know that the biggest priority for us is to make sure that the developer is getting the lion's share mm-hmm. um because the idea is that if they do well they'll they'll make more games right yeah exactly yeah and they'll keep going because of they see the uh what's, what's the word not the light in it but the 
not just getting their work out there, but the the, the rewards of it as well. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So is it hard to implement the VGA in titles? And you know, do you have to downscale any graphics for the Dreamcast at all? Uh, VGA is pretty easy to implement, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, to get technical for a moment, the way that most Dreamcast games are made now is using um, what's called an SDK. Sega had an SDK back in the day, but mm. nobody uses that because there's sort of it's a bit of a gray area whether you, whether you can release something that's used that. So everybody uses a an open source SDK. I believe there's one called Dream SDK, but it was, there's also one called Callisto OS or or Chaos, mm. um, and that basically just has all of this built in. So if you want to support uh, VGA, you just say VGA equals one, and all of a sudden VGA works. Um, so it's i wouldn't say it's easy um to to write a dreamcast game but it's a lot easier than it would be if that wasn't available well it was really interesting to see a title uh postal Mm. coming out for the dreamcast as well Uh, where did the idea of publishing that one come from and uh i was just wondering how how much you work with uh running with scissors as well yeah so that that goes back to about 2016 Running with Scissors had released the source code to Postal. They just put it out there and they said, look, anyone could do what you want with it. Please, can someone do a Dreamcast port? And for years, nothing happened until sometime in 2020 or 2021, uh, a chap by the name of Dan Redfield, he said, okay, if no one's going to do it, I'll do it. So he, he started porting the game. Uh, to the Dreamcast. He was posting updates as he went for quite some time, sort of over a six to nine month um, sort of period of time. And I messaged him and I said, you know what? This is really good. This is up to the quality of a commercial release. So maybe we can look into speaking running, speaking to running with scissors and, and you know, get official permission to actually put this out there. I believe it was always going to come out as, as, as a, a sort of digital download type release. But I thought this is a game that could have come out on the Dreamcast when it was new. Hmm. So perhaps there's a way that we can get it as a, as a, like an officially licensed title, full permission, get all the artwork and get it manufactured. So I messaged the guys from running with scissors and uh, you, in my typical style, which is, you know, Hey, this would be cool. Do you want to do it? And to my surprise, they replied in about 20 minutes and they said, yep, absolutely, let's do it. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a bunch of negotiation and they wanted to make sure they get paid and they wanted to make sure that dev gets paid. Of course, that's our old, that's our entire goal as well. So we, uh, we, we came to an arrangement and, um, yeah, surprisingly easy, really. It was just a cool thing to do and they were on board with it. And that's a proper commercial title as well. I know oh, you yeah. had other indie titles coming out, but did it, you know, having something with a rating come out and mm. all of this kind of stuff, uh, was was that quite tough to, to negotiate or did was a lot of the stuff already in place and it, it was just like, yeah, you know, so put a lot, it out a, there? A lot of that was already in place. There's all sorts of grey areas with like releasing something for an old obsolete system. Like, do you... Do you get a Peggy rating or not? Do you need one? Peggy themselves would say, we don't 
rate games for Dreamcast anymore, so we can't help you there. So because it already had an 18 rating, it was kind of, well, it's still an 18 rating, and it's the same game. Nothing's been changed. And I, and I guess it might have got you quite like high regard and credentials, you know, putting something out that was a, the, a proper commercial one as well. It, um, it, did yeah. people take you a bit more seriously? It's definitely the that. one that got the most attention. It, ha- it, it I suppose it mainly got the attention of, oh, this is a controversial game. It was banned in a bunch of countries and now there's a Dreamcast version. You know, what? what's this all about? Um, very, very strange idea, right? I mean, it's not, not something you'd expect to read in, in uh, you know, your, 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 your gaming news. Um, no, but it kind of fits so well as well. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of one of those things that you'd never see Sega uh, releasing as well. So no, no, uh, I suspect yeah. not. No, I mean, I I don't think it's ever been on a Microsoft console, for example. Well, the original hasn't been released on anything. The Dreamcast version is is indeed the only console version ever released. Weirdly, oh, wow. yeah, it's a very very strange situation. Yeah, it is. I didn't know that actually. <laughs> yeah, that's something new every day. <laughs> there is a remake, but it's not. It's a different game. It's basically. not the original. Yeah, yeah. Right, oh, the Redux one. Yeah. Yeah. So the Redux is is kind of like it, it's it's the story is the same, but it's a completely different game. And yeah, that's on Switch, I believe, and nothing else. Yeah. Of all the consoles, a Nintendo console as well. <laughs> I know, right? They've, they've completely changed their tune these days. Very different yeah. company. Very, very different. So uh, tell us about Shadow Gangs. This is a, one of your more, I say recent, but one of the more recent titles that Wave Studios put out. And uh, very, very, very Sega Mega Drive, if you will. Very Sega. Um, really love yeah, the very, look of Shadow Gangs. What's the story very- there? Very Sega, very uh, late 80s Sega arcade, I think. Is yeah. Probably the best way of putting that. Yeah. Um, Shadow Gangs has a very, very long history. Um, it, it started development in around about 2007, 16 years ago now, at time of recording. And it was the brainchild of one chap. Um, yeah. I only heard about the game fairly shortly before launch if you can believe that oh, wow. um, it i know that it had a following uh, i suppose a cult following that uh, had amassed over those 16 years it was originally released as a pc game as most mm-hmm. of these games are someone had asked him the developer could you could you release this on dreamcast and his initial reaction was yeah haha very funny but then, you know, the community is nothing if not persistent. And um, with the help of a bunch of the, the the sort of veteran devs out there, he actually went and did it, the mad lad. <laughs> <laughs> and then as, as with uh, a bunch of the titles that we've put out, it was a case of everyone was saying, you need to contact these wave guys because we need this physically. You know, this needs to happen. This needs to be a thing. And he did. And we basically just talked for months and months about like how best to approach a commercial release. And I, I was looking at it f- from the perspective of, you know, we might not necessarily be the ones to do this, but at least I can give him a, some advice yeah, and, and um, warn him of some of the pitfalls that can come with manufacturing Dreamcast games and the sort of marketing of that. It, it kind of all started off that we – we did the distribution. Well, we, we manufactured and distributed all of the Kickstarter items. 
So the regular edition of the game, there was a soundtrack, there was a special edition and an ultra edition, which mm. had like the game, the soundtrack, uh, a PAL case version, the blue fragile cases that you either love or hate. Love them. Um, some people <laughs> love them, some people hate them, and there's no in-between. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure there was there was like a poster and like a, some sort of signed thing and a, and a T-shirt. So we did all that on not enough of a budget, but we did it. We got it done. We got it out to everybody, and that was the start. And then, um, oh, the crucial thing was that everybody was expecting this to come out in October this year. But he actually shipped it about two weeks after the Kickstarter ended. Oh, wow. It was meant to be like a kind of um, a response to some of the other Kickstarters that have happened in the past, uh, not to name any names, where, you know, many, many, many years later, they say, oh, sorry, we're not shipping this game. So he said, you know what? I'm going to be the anti the anti Kickstarter stereotype. I'm going to ship it immediately after. And um, and then a month after that, you can then buy it uh, yeah. if, you didn't, if you didn't back it. Yeah, yeah. Um, which... I just thought it was brilliant. It was mm-hmm. it was it was absolutely hilarious, um, but it's it it also really proved to some of the um, the more cynical folks that you know this can be done and um, and it can be a great release and and you can make people very happy. No, oh, that's fantastic. That is, it's cool that it it came out straight away. And it's funny because it's like a slap in the face, but it's not a slap in the face. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like you say, it's hilarious. It's the only way I can describe it, you know. Yeah, it's not, it's not the norm. Take a year or two. No, it's not the norm at all. Um, not at and all. That's, and that's nothing, that's nothing against those games that do take that long. But I think the expectation with, with Kickstarter is that you're going to be waiting a long time. Yeah. And um, I think he just wanted to be a bit of a troll, basically. Mm-hmm. No, I like that. It's like it's a troll, but it's like the anti-troll because it's something cool. It's a good troll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I I was wondering how um like region and uh, you know there's different region locks and stuff on different consoles. How that's affected your games, and also w- w- would you consider doing like a power release and also a a Japanese release as well? So that's a great question. Um, the games are region free. Um, they don't need to be region free, but we see no reason for them to not be. Mm. We always do a sort of a European looking one, a Japanese looking one and a US looking one. We don't always distribute those versions. Sometimes we'll use um, a distributor in those respective countries. For example, in the US, we quite often use VGNY soft based in New York, but we'll always design a version, but the actual disc is the same. You know, it's the same content. It's the same region freeness so you can buy an american one and play it in japan a, a japanese one and pay it play it in europe uk it's it's no there's no there's no, no need issue. to put the region locks on it these days is there no i mean it's possible to do it but yeah why would you yeah why would you limit it like that when you want ultimately you want these games to to be played yeah we want them to be played and we want them to have the you know, the widest number of, of people that they can be accessible to. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, tell us about Alice Dreams Tournament. Um, that looks awesome. Tell us all about that. Alice Dreams. Uh, where do I start with this one? Um, this was another one that had um, had, had its release, had had been kickstarted, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted it to get out there to more people. 
and I thought it was really fun. So I, I contacted the devs. I did my thing. We got it out there. But crucially, it's been a really good one for events because you have a bunch of people that love retro gaming all in the same space. Quite often, you'll be there with friends or family. It's not often you go to one of these events yourself. So you'll have a bunch of friends that can play a four-player game of, of Alice Dreams tournament, which um, to explain the gameplay, it's kind of a Bomberman-like where you're navigating a maze and you can drop bombs to mm. blow up your friends, basically. Yeah, the graphics look awesome. I really I really love that style. Yeah, it's uh, sort of like a hand-drawn kind of thing. Yeah, hand-drawn. It kind of reminds me of Flash a little bit, but mm. then also, um, oh, I forget the name of it, the um, the Dreamcast game that came out in Japan where you run around the Sega Studios. Uh, oh. I, can't, I can't remember what it's called. You know which one I mean, though. It came out, it was like one of the last releases on, on the Dreamcast official. Not Sega Gaga, right? It, it could be that. It could yeah. be that. I can't remember its I, name. I've actually not played that, so I'm just, I'm just guessing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So one title that... Um, I saw you playing was a uh, drive strikers and that seems like an awesome title. It's really good fun. And uh, it kind of reminded me a bit of rocket league. Uh, great mm-hmm. seeing advertising for, you know, dreamcast Chunkyard in there as well. Um, how did this title come about? Driving strikers. It's an, it's an interesting story. It really started off just as a tech demo, just as a way of showing off what can be done on the dreamcast in 3d, uh, which as a, mentioned earlier is is quite a rarity in in dreamcast sort of indie homebrew type titles um so yes it started off as um a little tech demo and it was the concept was you know what if rocket league had been released 25 years ago on the dreamcast it wasn't a way to shoehorn that game onto the dreamcast and low low you know lower it down into a uh vga resolution or anything it was like if that concept had been fought up at the time how would it have been done um yeah. so that, that was the story behind that and and as is as is the story a lot of the time the community really liked the concept and they said right we demand a full version <laughs> and um luke being the the wonderful people pleaser that he is said yep yeah, okay this is, sounds like a really fun thing to do and uh, spent the next year of his life making that a reality uh, i'm amazed to see that it's got you know online play and uh multiplayer which is mad you know having a, a lobby and kind of meeting people on there and uh it's it's the first online multiplayer game released for the dreamcast since 2002 as well which it is, it is amazing. yeah yeah as, as far as we know there, there may possibly have been something in japan but i don't believe so um so yeah, twenty-one years without any online, um, without any new online games, and uh, now it's it felt like the right time. And um, as I said, Luke is a genius, and he said, "You know what? I want to do something that's going to stand out. So not only is it going to be a really fun game that uh, is different from anything else that's been on the Dreamcast, it should also have online play." Um, and not just online play, but online play that's that's cross-play compatible with the PC version. So you can host a game on, on your on your PC uh, from the version that you've grabbed off Steam, uh, which was released on the 24th of July, by the way. And, um, and then you can have all your friends on Dreamcast connect to it or 
all have the Dreamcast connect to each other or, or whatever you want to do, basically. Well, that's that's amazing. I, I'd love to see that happening on lots of other titles. And mm. I guess there's no no Sega Net involved. There. No Sega Net involved, no. Um, wow. As long as you've got an internet connection of some kind on the Dreamcast, whether through um, the broadband adapter or um, the modem, uh, whichever method you go for, you can you you basically just connect up to um, the get well the game connects to a matchmaking server, which is run by by Luke. Um, Reality Jump is the company, and it's completely free. You ba- it basically just does matchmaking and authentication, sort of to make sure that it knows that it's you. And um, and then once it's done that matchmaking, the Dreamcasts talk to each other and and connect directly to each other in that way that's absolutely mad um well uh another project that you've kind of been involved with sounds like you don't stop um it's been debug magazine as well and uh yeah i know that sega power and are involved with that as well um yeah tell us about debug magazine and how how it's kind of gone and uh, so started debug in a nutshell is um a new print magazine which is all about indie games. So it's the idea is that it's it's just like some of the highest quality mags that you may remember from 20 years ago, but it's all about the the best of now within the indie within the indie scene. The way that that started was basically prior to Sega Powered magazine being launched, I had had a chance meeting with Dean Mortlock, who is the editor of said magazine, was also the editor of Sega Power and Saturn Power back in the day for those in the UK. And we had talked about doing some sort of indie mag, like it would be cool if that were to happen, but, you know, obviously no one would be crazy enough to do it. And um, after about nine months, six to nine months of uh, Sega Powered being out there, I brought it up again and I said, you know, I think I think we could probably do this. I think there's interest in it, but it's also like we actually have something interesting to talk about. Yeah, I think there's so many titles that have, uh, you know, come out that that could do with some extra exposure and stuff and uh, people really looking into them and magazines Mm. are like the perfect format for that. Definitely. And it's um, whilst indie does not necessarily equal retro, um, a lot of indie games definitely have a retro feel to them. They're inspired by the games of yesteryear. I suppose it's because the people making the games were playing these game, these older, you know, eighties, nineties, early two thousands games as they were growing up. And they're now making games that are um, reminiscent or inspired in some cases by those types of titles. So it felt like a natural fit for us to get involved in. Yeah, it fits really well, and uh, you also seem to be doing a little uh, Dreamcaster debug indie sampler as well, which is like a, I guess it's like a little cover disc then that uh, works for the Dreamcast. Yeah, so the indie samplers are are a bit of a strange one because they're they're a bit like a cover disc, but we don't actually distribute it with the magazine because the magazine is primarily modern based. Whilst we do have a retro section it would be quite strange to distribute a Dreamcast demo disc with a game all about modern, uh, a, a magazine all about modern games. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's debug branded, but we sell it through the wave website. 
we don't we don't we don't actually sell it it's free it's it doesn't cost anything but it's it's available through the website yeah kind of, kind of burn your own or <laughs> use <a laughs> yeah you can burn your digital. own you can burn your own if you want but uh, yeah even the physical discs are free well before we go daniel it's been a wicked interview and i'd just like to know what are your future plans and is there anything you can talk about at oh all? wow um well more of the same that goes without saying i would really like to do some sort of compilation i'd like to do some some sort of some sort of disc which has a bunch of small games mini games maybe like a warioware that's what i would like to do oh that that would be good yeah using all the crazy dreamcast accessories yeah and they could be mini games right they don't have to be full experiences but if you've got a bunch of them on one disc yeah maybe maybe uh, maybe we'll see something like that at some point well daniel keep at it and uh, i think it's amazing that we're seeing uh, these games released and do you, do you get any crazy reactions from people when you say oh yeah i'm publishing um, <laughs> dreamcast games in 2023 you know what i um it's nothing but those kind of reactions it's <laughs> uh nobody says yes that makes sense that's completely normal i i understand every yeah every single time it's like it's it's like why why are you doing this like are you mad but uh you know i think it's important to do do something fun and um you know if it's viable and it's uh making a lot of people very happy and um giving the devs something uh something to do and and you know a living to be made then uh i'm happy to do it fantastic well thank you so much for coming on thank you very much it's been a pleasure